listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Midtown. This is our sermon series on the Gospel of Luke. Hear the word of the Lord. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. So it also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theolophus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were well along in years. When his division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, it happened that he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. At the hour of incense, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and overcome with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous, to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. How can I know this? Zechariah asked the angel. For I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Now listen. You will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, amazed that he stayed so long in the sanctuary. When he did come out, he could not speak to them. Then they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He was making signs to them and remained speechless. When the days of his ministry were completed, he went back home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and kept herself in seclusion for five months. She said, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, peace be with you. All right. Well, today we are kicking off the book of Luke. And uh, man, it's going to be a very long, good journey in the book. We're going to be in the book for uh, over 70 sermons. All right. And the question is, why in the world would we be in this book for um, over 70 sermons? And the short answer is, is we believe that this is a gospel that our church needs on many levels. Um, Luke is a disciple-forming book. It is a disciple-forming book. And in the book of Luke, we have these big, beautiful themes and messages that Jesus teaches about um, the kingdom of God and how it has penetrated into um, this, this world, this dark world, and about how salvation is for all. 
and about how Jesus moves towards the marginalized and the lesser of the societies, those who are, are poor and broken and needy. And by poor and broken and needy, he's not just talking about a physical uh, lack of, of wealth, but oftentimes he's talking about social class and people who are outcast of society. So I am pumped. I am ready to go with this gospel. And today is going to be an introduction set up for the sermon series. And uh, I'm just going to pause and pray that the Lord would, would bless us with this series, um, especially during the time of Advent, um, as we kick off Advent, a season of hope, a season of joy, but also a season of longing and anticipation. So would you pray with me? Uh, Father, thank you so much for, for your grace Thank you for your, your favor upon your people, for bringing light into the world. I pray that through the preaching and proclamation of your word that you would form us to, to follow Jesus, to become more like Jesus, and to live as Jesus lived. Uh, Holy Spirit, would you bless the preaching of this book? And would you allow it to, to make us more certain of the faith that we have received? We ask this not by might, nor by power, but according to your spirit, O Lord God of hosts. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. In Luke chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, we see that Luke is pretty much setting up the book and he lets us know um, why he is writing it and to, uh, to whom he is writing the book. And I love this. He kind of lays out his methodology of, of even how he shaped this book and how he formed the book. And if you look at verse 4, he gives us a, a really strong word in which uh, the title of the sermon is going to kind of be built off of. He says this, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. At the end of the day, Luke is writing this book, and we'll talk about this in a second, to someone so that they can be more certain about uh, the things that they had already been instructed in the, the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And so for today's sermon, we want to just simply talk from um, the, the topic of, of firm in faith or, or certain in faith. We want to be firm in our faith. We want to be more certain in our faith. And I love how Luke starts in verse one. He says this, many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us. So he's letting uh, his audience know that many people have written about the life and the work of Jesus Christ. And the question that we have to ask, if, if many people had written about the, the narrative uh, life of Jesus and, and Jesus' work and what he's come to do, then why do we only have four books in the Bible that's sharing about his life explicitly or telling the story of his life? Uh, if there's many, why do we only have four? And the four that we have is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So in the early church, there was a number of different uh, tests that the church um, 
took scripture through or letters that was written to early Christians through um, to see if they were um, God-breathed or uh, divine, uh, if they were inspired by God. And so uh, three of the main things that we see is, uh, first, apostolic authority. Apostolic authority. When an early church uh, got a book that, or a letter that was given to them, um, in order for it to be compiled into what we have in our Protestant Bible, the question was, was it uh, written with apostolic authority? In other words, uh, did someone um, who was an apostle or who walked with Jesus or who was close in proximity to someone who literally walked with Jesus write the book? All right. So in the Gospels, for example, we got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and? All right. So two of those disciples, both Matthew and John, were original disciples of Jesus, and they walked with Jesus. Mark's gospel, even though Mark did not personally uh, walk with Jesus in that way, as well as Luke, is included in our canon because of close proximity to an apostle. So it's believed that Mark walked with Peter and that the book of Mark, which is our earliest letter uh, gospel uh, that we have, uh, came from a, a, a compiling of Peter's sermons, right? So the early church affirmed Mark's gospel as it was likely that he was transcribing or simply writing about what Peter wrote. The book of Luke, Luke did not uh, walk with Jesus in the same way as, as Matthew or, or John that we know of. But Luke, who was a physician, he traveled with the Apostle Paul. And we see this in the book of Acts, that he was a traveling companion of Paul and that uh, many of and what he wrote was a, a com composition of uh, things from um, eyewitness accounts and uh, people who uh, firsthand told him stories about how they encountered uh, Jesus. So apostolic authority is first. The second is um, orthodox doctrine. Um, as the early church was reading the Gospels, they were asking the questions, is anything in these letters that someone has written, um, does it um, contradict uh, what the apostles taught? And so if there was contradiction in doctrine for what the apostles taught, it was asked. So there's some Gospels that you'll hear that um, are not Matthew, Mark, Luke or John, that um, other people say, well, this should be in the Gospels. Well, the early church rejected it, which brings us to our third main uh, testing point is, was there universal approval um, from Christians in uh, different parts of, of the world um, that these letters were um, were, were regularly to be read in their churches for encouragement. And so what we ended up with was Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So Luke says, listen, there are many who have undertaken to compile a narrative about these events that have been fulfilled. And this word fulfilled is a key theme that we're going to see in the gospel of Luke, especially in the first two chapters. Uh, Luke is going to show how the life and ministry of Jesus is a fulfillment of Old Testament promises. So today we're going to see um, the Annunciation uh, to uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, the announcement that uh, a prophet is going to be born through them. And we're going to see that uh, this was uh, the last verse in Malachi, it talked about this coming prophet who would be Elijah. And so we're looking at the fulfillment of this. John the Baptist is going to be born and we're going to read about his birth in, in chapter one and how that 
fulfills Old Testament prophecy. We're also going to see the fulfillment of Jesus's ministry, fulfilling many promises that were promised in the Old Testament. But what I love about Luke, what I love about Luke is Luke is an investigative journalist. Uh, He is investigating. He is searching. He is looking for people who have spent time with Jesus, who were impacted by Jesus, and he is going to them himself. Look at verse two. It says, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us, and most of this was through oral oral, uh, tradition, he says this, so it also seemed good to me since I have carefully invested everything from the very first to write to you in orderly sequence. And that's what we have here. Uh, Luke, unlike Mark, is not going to start with uh, Jesus uh, being grown and, and starting his ministry or uh, like Matthew with the genealogy. Uh, he is going to start at the very first of the sequence and he's going to start with um, these stories and this, the, the visitation of Gabriel to both Elizabeth, Zechariah, as well as Mary and Joseph. And he's going to give us an orderly, orderly account. Now, when Luke talks about an orderly account, he's not saying that everything is going to be in sequence and tell the story, and one, this happened, this happened, this happened. Luke, for decades, has been praying, researching, writing, and he is painting a masterpiece. And the way that he is ordering this masterpiece is theological. Some things are in sequence, this happened after this, but sometimes he pulls stories that may happen a little later into a story that is happening now in order to make a point or uh, to show a theme in Jesus's life in ministry. And what I love about his careful investigation is, um, is that it's ex- not only is it extremely uh, thoughtful, but it's very detailed and it's in depth. So Luke's gospel is part one of two volumes. And uh, sometimes we don't realize this, but Luke, in terms of just pure real estate, wrote in his gospel more than any other New Testament writer. The gospel of Luke is the longest book in the New Testament. And then he follows that up with a very long book um, in the book of Acts. And he is masterfully composing this narrative, masterfully composing it. What do you mean? Well, I mean this. Luke starts off in Galilee. Actually, before that, we're going to see he's going to have some stories in Jerusalem. But essentially, the first movement of Luke is going to be in Galilee. Then we're going to get to chapter nine in Luke. And in chapter nine, um, we're going to read this. So up until chapter nine, it's an introduction one through two verses three through nine is uh, Luke just telling some stories about Jesus. Then verse nine is about to get real. And he writes this. He says this, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. And suddenly in this gospel, everything is going to slow down. And Luke is going to begin to show Jesus in his last few weeks headed to Jerusalem. And he's going to give incredible detail to the end of Jesus's life, everything that he, he, he said and he did, not everything, but a lot of what he said and did. And the book is going to end in Jerusalem. At the end of the gospel of Luke, the last verse, stay with me, we're going somewhere. He wrote this, and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple praising God. So he ends the book with 
disciples of Jesus seeing a resurrected Jesus, and the disciples end up going to the temple, and they're in the temple essentially telling people about their experience with Jesus and his resurrection. Then in volume two, he's going to write his book to the same person, and he's going to start in Jerusalem, and he's going to bless his disciples before leaving. And the point of volume two in Acts is to show the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles and how they took Jesus's commission to go from Jerusalem to uh, Samaria, to Judea, to the ends of the earth, literal, and how they took the message of the gospel to the end. So Luke is really doing a V with his writing from Galilee to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to the end of the world. I mean, he is painting a portrait. And I believe that the main point that he's doing as he's writing early Christians is saying, this is your story. This is the message that we have received. This is your certainty in faith. I know you're in Rome. I know you're being persecuted. I know that you are outcast. I I know that you have longings. I know that life is difficult. I know that you seem foolish when you explain to people what you believe and why you believe it, but you can believe it with certainty because this is reality. This is what God has done. His kingdom has broken into this present evil age and it is near and it is moving. And Jesus is on the throne and he's coming back. And so Luke wants us to have certainty. And part of what we see in this in this first chapter, too, is that um, he's a historian. He is writing to the early church and he's like, hey, some of the people I'm talking about, they are alive. Like you can go fact check. me. You can go and talk to some of these people. That's why we see in verse five, he says, in the days of King Herod, of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. If Luke was just making up a myth or a fairy tale, um, he, I wouldn't put those details. I'd be like, um, what you would call it uh, was um, with, um, you know, uh, old dude down the street, and then um, they did this and see what had happened was. No, he's like, yo, go fact check me. Go fact check me. Go to the daughters of Aaron. Ask about this person. Do your research yourself. And see, there's some people here today who, man, you're, you're trying to figure out Christianity. You read the Bible. You're like, man, I'm, I'm just confused. What is the Bible? There seems to be this historic uh, nature of it, these, these dates, these places, these, these people. But then there's these miracles. And, and I don't know if the Bible should be read as like... Um, as a, uh, as a historical reality? Was there a literal Jesus? Is this just mythology? I'm just so confused. I want you to know that as Christians, we believe in the word of God. We believe that, th- that Jesus was a literal person who, who lived and who was e- eternally God, who put on flesh, who became man, who lived the perfect life, who died uh, in our place so that our sins would be forgiven, who literally exists in a physical body and is seated on the right hand of God. And listen, we believe this without turning off our brains. 
We believe this because there is historical evidence that can be corroborated outside of the Christian faith of real people and real actions. And something happened around the first century that caused people to to go crazy and to be willing to lose their lives and say that they saw a resurrected Jesus. C.S. Lewis, who was a, a author, a literary critic who came to faith late in life, who was trained to read mythology and to critique it, said this of the Bible. He says, all I am in private life is a literary critic and historian. That's my job. And I'm prepared to say on that basis that if anyone thinks the Gospels are either legend or novels, then that person is simply showing his incompetence as a literary critic. I've read a great many novels, and I know a fair amount about the legends that grew up among early people. And I know perfectly well the Gospels are not that kind of stuff. The Gospel is not that kind of stuff. It's not made up. And part of what I'm going to be doing today and, and part of what we'll be doing in the, in the Gospel of Luke is just encouraging you to, to hold firm. This is the main point. This is what I want you to take away. To hold firm to faith in God through distress, actively anticipating the arrival of divine supply. That is, In our lives, there is going to be doubts. There's going to be seasons of distress. There's going to be trials. There's going to be temptations. And and Satan wants us to lose certainty. He wants us to lose this firmness of faith. And I believe that God's invitation to us as a church is to hold firm in our faith to be encouraged with certainty that we can trust the word of God and we can trust the God, that God at his word. And that God will divinely supply for us. Advent is a season of longing. Advent is a season of waiting. We celebrate the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that, that God became flesh and he pitched his tent among us. But even with that reality and that truth, everybody in here is longing for something. Longing is is a part of of human nature. It's a part of how God created us to have desires. But sometimes our longings can drown us. Sometimes our longings can lead us to despair and to distress. And Satan wants, as he did in the garden, to cast doubt on God's faithfulness in our longings and to make us think that we are not loved or that God cannot be trusted. And Luke is writing to the early church in the midst of persecution and a persecution that is going to intensify, to hold firm in faith, to have a certain faith. And he starts with a story that is rich with longing. He starts with the devotion of Zachariah and Elizabeth, a.k.a. Pastor Zach and First Lady Liz. All right. We're going to call her Lady Liz. Ain't no first. All right. She's the only lady. All right. Amen. People in my tradition, they get that. First lady. No, it's lady. No, first. All right. (laughs) <laughs> Where am I? All right, verse six. So he explains uh, Zechariah and Liz's situation. He says, listen, 
Both of them were righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. So remember, he's building credibility and he's doing this with a a guy named Theophilus. Okay, so look uh, back real quick. He says this, I have carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you in orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus. His name Theophilus means lover of God, right? Lover of God. Some people believe that this is a name for the church, that this is like a code name. I I don't think that there's a a way really to prove that. I think that Theophilus is probably a person, but Theophilus has been taught in the way of Jesus, and now he's writing to him so he can have more certainty in his faith. We don't know if his faith is wavering. We don't know if he's just simply discipling him to this next step, but he starts the story by giving details of Zechariah and Elizabeth and showing that the first two people that were investigated or where he wants to start his story were people of devotion. They were upright. They were blameless. They were righteous. They were keepers of the law. And here's what's amazing about Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were faithful to God despite distress. Verse 7. But they had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive and both of them were well along in years. Are you, do you feel the tension in the text? A faithful family who are older in age, who could not conceive, they are barren, pious, but in pain. Pious, but in pain. And so he shares about this barrenness. He shares about this pain that they had. And anybody who knows the Old Testament and who has read the story of Israel uh, knows that this is a a very common theme in the Old Testament. You have Sarah and and Isaac who are given a promise that they will bear a child and that that, that Abraham, I'm sorry, and Abraham, and Abraham would be the father of many nations. And they are barren, old in age, and they have Isaac. You have this story being mimicked throughout the Old Testament. You have Rebecca, you have Rachel, you have Hannah. You have these godly people who fear the Lord, who are barren and who God divinely supplies a child through. And this child becomes an important figure in Israel, whether it's Isaac, whether it's it's Jacob, whether it's Samuel. This is a, a theme that we see in Scripture. And this is just an observation that we should make when thinking about God in our own lives. Listen to this. God often moves, yes, in mysterious ways, but I I believe that God often moves in in thematic ways. And and sometimes, sometimes we need to just pause and look at our own story in our own life and, and be reminded of our own story in our own life of God's faithfulness. In the life of Israel, there were some dark seasons. There were some dark times where it looked like God had forgotten people and he had forgotten his people. And and, and it seemed barren and it seemed dry and it seemed lifeless and it seemed dead. It seemed impossible. And God brought possibility out of impossibility. And if you look back at your life and stop and just calculate your life, there has been times when you've been lonely, when you've been confused, when you've been in lack, where everything seems barren in your life and God somehow supplies. Just thinking in, in my story, there's just this theme of like giving up or being on the brink of giving up on something or literally giving up in my own strength. And as soon as I say I give up, 
God says, okay, now I can, I want (laughs) to, now that you've finally gotten to where I want you to be, (laughs) I can, I can speak to you. I can move because I'm going to be the one to get the credit. It says that Zechariah was just being faithful in his priestly duties, the day in, the day out for years. When they were younger, they were hurting. They wanted to have a child. They were probably being mocked because of what children represented in in Israel. But as a priest, people were probably asking questions, man, why can't you all have a child? What's wrong? you, You work for the Lord. You handle holy things. People were drawing inerrant conclusions. And yet, um, this was the lot that God had, had given them. And that's a hard lot. And everybody in here has a hard lot, a lot of, of longing. Maybe it's wanting something. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a, a spouse. Maybe it's a better marriage. Maybe it's a higher paying job. Maybe it's to be sharper or smarter or, uh, or to, 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 to do something that um, you really want to do, but it feels like you don't have the funds to create and do. We all have these longings. And may God give us the grace, like Elizabeth and like Zechariah, to be devoted to him amid dismay, disappointment, discouragement, distress. As he was going about his regular duties, we, the Bible says that he is picked, a lot is drawn, and uh, Zechariah is picked to light the incense in the temple, which was a once-in-a-lifetime uh, thing to be picked. It's like hitting a lottery. Um, this would have been the uh, apex of his priestly career, and he's excited, I'm sure. He goes in to light the incense, and as he lights this incense, Gabriel, an angel, is standing by the incense, which is being lit, that represents the presence of the Lord, and Zechariah uh, responds with, with fear. It says, when Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and overcome with fear. Who here has seen the, um, the Black Panther uh, 2, Wakanda Forever? Okay. Way better than the first uh, service. Good job, y'all. All right. And uh, some of us, you know, who have not seen that uh, movie, I'm just going to, you know, probably spoil a scene for you. And uh, that's your fault, not mine. It's, <laughs> it's like six months in, all right? It is fair game, all right? But there's a, a scene in, uh, in the Black Panther 2 where uh, Suri, who is uh, the Black Panther's uh, sister, is uh, going to uh, college campus, which is believed to be MIT, to find a young woman named Riri, who is extremely gifted, is really smart, and has created um, this machine basically to find uh, verbanium. What is it? Vibranium. There you go. I didn't write that in my notes. All right. And so as she is going to see her, uh, she sneaks into her dorm room. And Riri um, sees her in her room and she just freaks out. And at first she's met with excitement because she knows like, this is crazy. This person is from Wakanda. She is the Black Panther's sister. And all of a sudden she turns afraid because she knows that uh, her life is about to change one way or another. She starts picking up stuff and she throws something at Suri and one of the uh, Wakanda warrior women's kind of takes out her spear and splits stuff in, in half. And it's like, oh snap, something's about to happen. It's about to go down, right? 
The reason I tell that story is because every time I read this about 20 times this week, I just kept thinking of that saying. All right. So this is Zechariah. He sees this angel and he's probably excited like this is amazing. Oh, my goodness. What are you doing here? And he is overcome with fear. He's terrified because Gabriel, the angel, doesn't look to be human. He's different. He stands in the presence of God. Maybe he has this bright glow, this this presence about him. Then we read in the text in verse 13, but the angel said, do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you will name him John. Now, what's interesting about this in the Bible, of course, parents name their children often um, after someone in their family or in a way in which they wish the child uh, to be here. The angel tells uh, Zechariah what the child's name is going to be. His name will be John and John means Yahweh is gracious or Yahweh's favor is upon you. And I think that his name in this story has significance for two reasons. One is for Elizabeth and Zechariah. The angel's gonna go on and say that your prayers have been heard. Now, the question is which prayers have been heard? And the answer is the prayers to have a child. But I doubt that Elizabeth and Zechariah have continued to pray for a child in their old age. It's likely that the angel was saying, your prayers from years ago have been answered and you're gonna have a child. We don't know the mind of God. The Bible says his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are, are not our thoughts. We don't know why God withheld from them for so long. And sometimes in some of our stories, Um, We won't have the thing that we have longed for. Things won't be uh, tightly uh, wrapped in a bow and and go to its expected end in the way that we want it. And that's for every single one of us. There's not a person on this earth who will have every longing met and every question answered. We all see through a mirror dimly and we all have desires in our hearts, in our bodies, in our stories that we want to be fulfilled. But the angel comes to him and says, your prayers have been heard and you're going to have a child. Yahweh is gracious. Yahweh's favor is upon you. But the second meaning of this is not just for Zechariah and Elizabeth, but it's for Israel, the people of God. For 400 years, a prophet has not spoken in Israel of significance. 400 years of absolute silence. There's been no Isaiah. There's been no Jeremiah. The the people of God don't have a, a clear direction in what God is doing in that moment. And the angel comes and says, despite Israel's sin, despite Israel's rebellion, despite Israel's breaking of the covenant, God is faithful. He is a covenant keeper. And his kingdom is near. The last verse in the Old Testament, we read this. Look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. 
we read here these words as the angel comes and tells them about the ministry of John. There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will never drink wine or beer. He will be fulfilled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the Spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and to disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready the Lord for the Lord, a prepared people. Later on in the book of Luke, we'll see that Jesus is going to call John Elijah, John the Baptist. This child that they are about to have is the fulfillment of the last verse of the Old Testament, the last words that God spoke in Malachi, he is coming to Elizabeth and to Zechariah saying, this is your son. He is going to prepare the way of the Lord. He is going to preach in a way that it's going to bring renewal to God's people, to Israel. And that was John's ministry. John's ministry was to prepare the way of the Lord. If a king was coming into a town, he would come with a large convoy. Before that large convoy, there would be a smaller convoy that would go before the king and he would clean up the road. He would make sure everything looked presentable, make sure it was safe. And he would declare the king is coming. John's ministry was to be the convoy that came before Jesus, was to be a voice in the wilderness, prophetically speaking to Israel, reminding them of what the old covenant said, reminding them of the promise of the coming Messiah and saying, get ready, get ready, get ready. And so, yes, they were barren and they could not have a child, but God fulfilled their longing in a way in which their name would forever be remembered. And while all of our stories won't be tied up in a neat bow like them at the end of our lives, We believe by faith that every true, good, and beautiful longing will be fulfilled in Christ Jesus. That one day we all will be satisfied and fulfilled, and we will look back on this life and see the beauty, after seeing the beauty and the glory and the majesty of our triune God, and say, I did not understand why I went without then, but God is so beautiful, so glorious so amazing. And he truly fulfills the desires of those who serve him. Trusting in God means trusting that he is a loving father, a caring father, that he is all knowing, that he is all powerful, and that he has our best interests at hand. And even though we don't always understand what he is doing, we can trust him when we can't trace him because we know his character. And larger than that, we know that he is doing a work in the universe, in the world that we cannot see and that we cannot understand, but he is perfectly knitting all things together for his glory and all of his children's good. And that may not change the desire. That may not change the longing. We're humans hurt, lament, yearn. But do that while praying and being faithful to a God who is faithful to you. Now, this next section seems a little harsh. The angel tells this to 
Zechariah, and Zechariah says, uh, how am I supposed to know that this is what's really going on, right? And the angel uh, silences him, makes it so he can't speak for nine months. And in reading this, this, this may seem really harsh. Like, man, he asked a genuine question. And some people say, well, this silencing is actually not judgment. This is just the um, angel giving him a sign. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> if I asked the question and somebody made me silent, I'm going to say, uh, that don't feel like a good sign. That feels like judgment. And it is because the text says that he did this because he didn't believe. But what do we do with this for those who are in Christ? I mean, <laughs> Zachariah was faithful and devoted through years of dismay and distress. And then he asked a question and he has these consequences. Well, the way we think about this is one, we know that God is good. He is, he is faithful and he is loving and that in Christ. For those who place their faith and trust in him, uh, there is no wrath reserved for us. We are hidden in Christ. We are God's beloved. We are forgiven for our past, present, and future sins. God is not punishing us ever to harm us. And yet, it is also true that God is training us for righteousness. Hebrews chapter 12 says that he disciplines those that he loves, which means it can also be translated as he is training those with whom he loves. That sometimes we pay the consequences for our sins, not because God does not love us, but the exact opposite reason is because he does love us. And he's not punishing us to harm us. He's punishing us actually to heal us, to make us look more like Jesus. So as a loving father, he silences Zechariah. But there's another reason why Zechariah was silenced. And it is because Elizabeth was old in age and she needed more silence at that age. I'm just joking. <laughs> You're like, mm, she's like, nah, thank you, Lord. Just go get it. Just go get it. Verse 19. He says, the angel answered him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. This is good news. Now listen, you will become silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. It won't be forever. It will be after the, the birth of John, because you did not believe my words, which were full, there's that word, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, amazed that he stayed so long in the sanctuary. When he did not come out, he could not speak to them. Then they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He was making signs to them and remained speechless. When the days of his ministry were completed, he went back home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and, and kept herself in, in Inclusion, in seclusion for five months. She said, the Lord has done this for me. He looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. And so we, we see this working out that Pastor Zach 
leaves the temple, people assume, hey, he's been in there way longer uh, than he should have. And now he's doing something. He's not able to speak when he was able to speak before. Um, the Lord must have visited him. And then we see Elizabeth going into uh, seclusion for five months. And as that child begins to show more and more, she concludes that God's favor is upon her, which essentially is John's name, that the Lord is gracious, that the Lord shows favor to his people. Two really quick applications, and then I'll sit down. First is this, is this invitation to deepen your faith through critical reflection while following Jesus. Deepen your faith through critical reflection while following Jesus. As we start the Gospel of Luke, I want to um, encourage you to read the book just as uh, Luke wanted uh, Brother Theo to read it, to read it critically with your mind on. And the Gospel of Luke, it really is a masterpiece. I want to encourage you to sit in each story, to read it meditatively, but also to take some time to read it in chunks so that you can see the theological themes and truths that he wants you to see about Jesus. And if you're here today and you are um, struggling with the Christian faith because you think that Christians turn their brains off in order to have faith in Jesus, I want you to see that that is not what the Bible calls Christians to do. That Jesus wants to form people holistically. In fact, he says, in order to love God, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. Part of loving God is loving him with your mind. And Jesus is going to model this. We see early on in Jesus' life, Luke is going to give us a portrayal of Jesus in which he is in the temple at 12 years old, sitting with priests, talking about the Old Testament and the law. In fact, the Jewish faith was a thinking faith. Young uh, Jewish uh, boys would go to school and, and memorize the, the first five books of the Old Testament and be catechized, and they would learn to think deeply about their faith and in the same way when Jesus calls us to follow him and to be his disciple, he is calling us to be a thinking people and to have faith, a firm faith, to have certainty in faith that what we have received is not mythology. It's not something that is just made up. It's not a fairy tale. It actually is true truth. It is reality. And as Christians, we build our whole lives around that truth. And we model our lives after Jesus in the way that Jesus tells us to. And so if you're here today, you're thinking about becoming a Christian. I want you to know, become a Christian, not based on just on what you feel, but become a Christian based upon what you believe to be true. And that is the tomb is empty. Jesus has defeated death. He is alive and well. And become a Christian by counting the cross of being a Christian, which means you need to stop and think deeply about what you believe and why you believe it. This is what Jesus taught in Luke chapter 14. He said, no one builds a house or desires to build a tower without first sitting down and counting the costs, whether he has enough to complete it. Jesus was constantly telling people, slow down and think about what I'm offering. Think about what I'm saying. Think about what I'm telling you. And as Christians, we should never stop thinking. 
Some of us, we are just too passive in our thought life and we are looking more and more like the world and less like Jesus. And we are believing slowly and and, and subtly the lies of Satan. And we're becoming just like Adam and Eve in the garden, slowly taken away by lies and deception and entertaining this little voice that says, did God really say? Yes, the Bible says that, but. And God is saying, no, be firm in your faith. Ephesians chapter six talks about spiritual warfare, putting on the whole armor of God and repeat it over and over. He says, stand, stand, stand. And a way that you stand is by putting on that helmet of salvation. It's by allowing your mind to be renewed and transformed. Be a thinking people. Second and final, sustain unwavering, unwavering faithfulness amidst unanswered longings. Every single person in here um, has longings, will have longings, will feel this deep sense of lack and of sadness. And if you think that you're the only person who feels that because you don't have X, you don't understand humanity. You don't understand how the world works. And all of us can fall into that trap by thinking that we're an anomaly, that this one thing, if we just had, would complete us or make us happy. And we think that somehow God doesn't love us because we don't have X or we don't have Y or this person on Instagram or this person out there has everything they can ever want. And they are just this completed person. Listen to me. You are listening to a person who constantly has longings who woke up this morning and had to get on his face to, to rethink his thinking before even proclaiming God's word because the longings were so strong. Questions were so strong. That is a part of the Christian life. That is a part of the Christian faith. And the way in which we shape those longings is by looking to Jesus, our perfect savior, who himself as a human being experienced longings. He was a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief, the book of Isaiah says. You don't have sorrow and grief if there's not longing. Jesus' father will not be mentioned after uh, uh, his visit to the temple. And it's believed that Jesus' dad died when he was young. He had a father womb. He had an earthly desire just like many of you do. He was misunderstood. He was misinterpreted. He was the perfect communicator and constantly find himself having to over-communicate. He was the perfect human being and constantly found people walking away from him, calling him crazy, saying that he was a drunkard. He knows your loneliness. He knows alienation. He knows what it's like to be in a body that is abused and misused. He knows what it's like to be whipped. He knows what it's like to be spat on. He knows what it's like to feel dehumanized and not appreciated. And yet he was faithful and he was devoted to his father's will because he knew that after humiliation comes exaltation and that through him persevering to the cross in the empty tomb, that one day he will heal every wound in his people. And I want to encourage you to bring your longings to the Lord today, to light an incense to him and to expect him to show up, but also to expect that longing to come back up and you bring it right back to him. 
and know that one day he will satisfy your deepest longing. And until that day, just trust him even when you can't trace him because he has proven his love for you in giving his only son for you. Not just so that you can be forgiven of sins, but so that you could have life and life more abundantly. Let's pray. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.